Increment 18, Hebrews 2020. Coming to you today with Jim McClory at the Alamo, otherwise known as the City on a Hill. I found one practical thing to be true almost over all others in my brief shift as a pastor who teaches. That one thing is that believers who receive the teaching of the word and who truly benefit from it over the long haul are those who gaze and not just glance into the mirror of the word. They are truly attentive. They don't just say, yeah, I heard that message. And when they're in a trial or a testing period, they don't say, yeah, but when you tell them to trust in the Lord. They don't just say, yeah, I heard that message as if they had fulfilled some kind of obligation by being there or by listening with a superficial or a half-hearted attentiveness. Over these years, I've seen a pretty wide gap develop between casual Christians and serious Christians. Serious ones who, for example, and this doesn't always have to be the case, but they listen to teachings more than once. And sometimes, many multiple times, in order to truly appreciate and even more importantly, to truly appropriate, and by the appropriate I mean take into their own possession for oneself the messages in their layers. And there's usually, there are usually many layers to every message. And take them in in their essence and apply them in times when we're called to go over the top, out of the trench, cross the, through no man's land to engage the invisible enemy. These serious Christians are the ones who are distinguished from those who just put in their time and who cave in to a spirit of fear in the day of adversity. And that day inevitably comes, Proverbs 24.10. There are many translations of that passage, but one of the ideas is that if you cave in in a day of adversity, it's because your strength is small. I would say we cave in in a day of adversity because our strength is ours rather than be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. And when it's all over, you will have taken your stand in the day of adversity. I have encouraged over and over again, for example, with a certain degree of urgency, that those who occupy their six, and by six I mean their six foot six, six by six, rather, in tetelestai phalanx, 
that they study the written notes that accompany the spoken messages. He who seriously engages, and when I say he, of course I mean he or she, he who seriously engages with the word in these notes, whether dialectically or in, with an interior conversation, or just by following the scriptural references therein, and who really concentrate, that's the one whom call, who is called by James, and we're going to look at James in a moment, one, chapter one. James calls this person blessed in his deed. Makarios en te poiesi autu. He's a doer of the word. He's blessed in his deed. He's happy in his creative application of the word. In fact, the epistle to James contains an increment that is most helpful in explaining what I'm saying here. And it begins with 119b, the B part. It says, let everyone be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Verse 21, so throw off all filthiness and superfluous depravity. Superfluous, superfluous depravity. Simply means you don't need it. And in fact, it will impede you. And welcome the implanted word that is powerful to save your souls. Welcome, decomai. Welcome with a view to entertaining, with a view to appropriating, to, with a view to waiting on the implanted word. Then it says in verse 22, become doers. And that word doers is interesting because it means in one translation, poets in Acts chapter 17, verse 28, one of your own poets, Paul says, wrote such and such. In him we move and live and have our being. In him, meaning God, we live, we move and we have our being. The word is poetai. Doers, poetai. I would call them creative appliers of the word. Become doers of the word and not just listeners. That means like, don't be just like someone who audits a lecture or just sits in. Thus deceiving yourselves. The Bible in basic English, I think rightly says, thus blinding yourselves with false ideas or deluding yourselves into thinking maybe you're living the higher integration of human living in Christ just by listening. That you're living in God-approved livingness in the spirit just because you're listening. Operating in divinely approved rectitude just because you're auditing, deceiving yourselves. 
Then he goes on to make a pretty good illustration, kind of a parable, kind of a similitude. Verse 23, because if someone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. He looks at himself, verse 24, he goes away, and he immediately forgets what he looks like. James is adapting here a Jewish and a Jewish Christian notion that's found in Romans 2.13, namely that it is not the hearers of the Torah who will be justified by God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Now, James is not saying here in antagonism with Paul that the doers of the law of Moses are justified in God's sight. He is rather using this principle that Jewish Christians would have been familiar with, namely that the teaching that he's referring to here is that God-approved livingness comes from a doing of the implanted word, the message, the gospel. The law of Moses is not able to save the soul. The implanted word of Christ, which Colossians 3.16 says, the word of Christ, is able to save the soul. To deliver and to preserve the soul of a person in time of distress. To keep a soul, a mind, and emotions together in a period of adversity is what is meant. And sometimes even the saving of one's life, one's physical life. James is calling for his readers to have not a superficial, but a deep reception and even a kind of engagement with the word of God. Paul makes a similar point as he expresses gratitude to God for the Messianic community in Thessalonica. To them he wrote this, and this has been a meaningful verse to me, as James's passage has, for all these years, during my short shift as a shepherd who teaches. To that Messianic community in Thessalonica he wrote, We constantly thank God that when you received our message, you welcomed it. The word decamai is the same word that James uses. Our message, you welcomed it. Decomai, D-E-C-H-O-M-A-I. Not as you would the word of men. Traveling sophists, sophists would travel to many of the cities of the time, including Thessalonica, and they would speak about pop philosophy or some new thing. It's the word of men. But Paul said, you did not welcome it as you would the word of men, but as what it is in reality, the word of God, which also works effectively in you who have faith. You who have faith, you who believe it. 
To Paul, the effective working, the efficacious activity and energizing, we could call it, of the word of God is the worker. In other words, the word in you is the worker. When you and I mix faith with it, as, as Hebrews 4.2 says. To Paul, the effective working of the word is itself the worker in those who receive the message as the word of God and not merely the word of men. So we're only doers when the word has its efficacious activity in us as we believe or in the words chosen by the PT, the pastor theologian who wrote and who preached Hebrews, when faith is blended with the message in those who hear, Hebrews 4.2. When faith is blended with the message in Hebrews 4.2. Now the picture of James The picture that he portrays is of a man in a hurry. On the way out the door, he glances in the mirror. He's on the way somewhere to meet someone or to perform some service. Now, when he glances in the mirror, he may see or notice just for a second that he's only shaved half of his face. And that his hair is sticking up in four different directions. But it doesn't register with him. He looks for a moment, it doesn't register, and he goes out the door. He's got things to do. People to meet, deals to make. So he goes out forgetting that he looks like the village idiot. God is after a real appropriation of his word. And a creative application of it. Call it a poetic application. The creative application of a liberated person. As someone who has stared into the perfect law of liberty. Which means the fulfilled Torah of freedom. As we'll see. This comes not from a glance in the mirror but from gazing into the mirror of the word and seeing the image of the Lord therein and being transformed into that image from one degree of glory to the next, as 2 Corinthians 3.18 says in an image presented by Paul. Both Paul and James use the image of a mirror and the image in the mirror. We are God's poem, poema, Ephesians 2.10. And he has preordained that we occupy ourselves in certain honorable enterprises for which he designed us. He is the God of all grace, 1 Peter 5.10. And as such, he has many expressions of grace, 
in which his people become creative doers of his word. In 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. Now, I like to liken this analogy to someone who takes a class for credit in college at a university versus someone who merely audits the class. Let's say that someone takes a class for credit. She knows she's accountable for what she hears the professor teach. Because she's taken this for credit. She knows she has to pay undivided attention to the professor's lectures. She knows she has to carefully study his outlines or even read his notes if he's got them and study them. Or his PowerPoints. Or read the books he's assigned in order to get at least a passing grade. And hopefully, if she's majoring in this class, an exemplary grade. She knows that she'll be tested on what she hears. And so she attends to what she hears earnestly. She listens carefully. She appropriates the information in such a way that she can express it on a test or perhaps in an essay, or maybe in a speech before her class and her prof. She needs the credits that she will garner from passing this class. She needs to excel if she wants a grade point average that will garner from passing this class. She does her homework. She invests herself in the content of the class. She appropriates for herself so that she can explain it herself, the professor's considerable knowledge. And she's on the way to her own expertise. She's become a doer. Then there is the auditor, we call him. This particular auditor in our analogy is bored with life. So he wants to attend this class for something to do. He's mildly interested in the subject. And he goes to be entertained. Or perhaps he's dabbling in the subject. And he wants to pick up a few tidbits of interesting information. Or maybe he wants to simply meet and mingle or check out the chicks. I'm not just saying that to be facetious. I've seen this happen over my many years as a pastor. This auditor has no sense of accountability. He knows he won't be tested on the material. He's just a hearer and perhaps a dilettante or a dabbler in the subject. Maybe he wants to impress his friends at a dinner party that he knows something about if the class is quantum theory or evolutionary biology or ancient history or archaeology. But on the other hand, the doer of the word is a seer. 
He's like a man who sees himself in the mirror. He looks attentively enough and long enough to remember what he looks like when he goes to the interview or when he goes to work or goes out socially. He's confidently presentable. More importantly for us, the seer really sees Jesus in the mirror of the word. And he or she looks long enough and attentively and is transformed increment by increment from glory to glory day by day into the image of the Lord which is manifested in the mirror of the word. This is the real seer. And the one who becomes a doer of the word as one who manifests the life of Jesus in her mortal body by acts that manifest his love, peace, joy, fidelity, patience, gentle and thoughtful concern, compassion, humility, meekness, self-control. Now we see Jesus. That's what Hebrews is all about. We see Jesus not by an occasional glance, but with a steady gaze. You keep in perfect peace he whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you, says Isaiah 26.3. A mind stayed on Jesus is the mind kept in perfect peace. Those whose minds are stayed on the Lord are the potential doers of the word. They are the warrior poets. They're kept in peace. They act in peace. They become peacemakers. And as such, they are blessed in their deeds of peacemaking. Blessed are the peacemakers because they will be called sons of God, says Jesus, Matthew 5, 9. They are called the sons of God because like God who has made peace by the blood of his son's cross, they urge others be reconciled to God. They become Christ's ambassadors with a message from God that profits those in whom it is mixed with faith, blended with faith. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him is the message of the peacemaker. 2 Corinthians 5, 19 to 21, in connection with Colossians, Colossians 1, 20, and Ephesians 1, 9 and 10 are relevant here. Now, James concludes our paragraph like this, James 1, but he will be blessed in his deed. That doesn't mean just in a work that he does, but in the activity of his livingness, in the activity of his life, and that may include his career, that may include his vocation, that may include his everyday activity. 
He will be blessed in his deed who looks intently into the perfect law. That means the fulfilled Torah. I have come to fulfill the Torah, said Jesus. This person looks into the fulfilled Torah of freedom and stays looking. That means he gazes. Not becoming a forgetful auditor, but a creative doer who acts. Now, this is the person who doesn't drift. He's found his deed, that which God preordained for him to do. And he's happy and blessed in the doing of it. He has discovered why he's here and for what and more often, more importantly, for whom he was created. He finds his own will in the midst of a people who are easily led by demagogues, shifty politicians, clever liars and propagandists, mystics, gurus, spiritualists, and legalists. He's not given to fads and passing, passing fashions, to trends and megatrends set by morally bankrupt influencers and spiritually bereft teachers, news commentators and pundits with their particular bents and intents. The doer of the word has discovered his own deed, the one that God preordained for him to walk in. And he's not content to do what everyone else is doing or to mimic their desires or to mimic their lusts, or to imitate their ambitions. The doer of the word has discovered his own will. And so he's not content to choose what everyone else is choosing. This goes back to our message on drifting and the content of Bernard Lonergan's chapter 17 of volume 17 of his Storied collection. The doer has discovered a mind of his own because he has let the mind of Christ be in him. In Philippians 2.5. In fact, he has armed himself with the perspective of Christ himself in 1 Peter 4.1. And so he's not content to think and say and parrot what everyone else in the world is thinking and saying. He's not like the drifters doing and choosing and thinking and saying what others happen to be doing and choosing and thinking and saying. And here, as I've mentioned, I'm in dialogue, sort of a dialogue with Bernard Lonergan's wonderful profile of the drifter in chapter 17 of volume 17 of his collection. Now, to me, this explains a lot of things, but mostly it explains why some who hear the Bible taught over the course of many years allow the rate of forgetting to overtake the rate of learning. And it explains why some who heard the word for many years do not seem to profit anything from it. It explains, on the other hand, 
why some have indeed profited from the word of God, the word that's been taught, because they received it as the word of God. And they allowed it to blend with their own personal faith, faith which God himself ignites in them. The same distinction between these two kinds of hearers, the hearer and the doer, is in Hebrews. There are those who did not profit from the good news brought by Moses. There was an element of his message that was gospel, good news. Hebrews 4, 1 and 2. They didn't profit by the message because, quote, the good news they heard was not united with faith in them that heard. Hebrews 4.2. The reason that it did not meet and unite with faith in the hearers of the message is because they received the message as if it were merely Moses' words and not the word of God through Moses. On the other hand, the PT, the author of Hebrews, gives a whole list of examples of those in whom faith was united with the word of God and the promises of God and those who profited by the message and were approved by God. These are the cloud of witnesses who surround us. These are the kind of people who, like Jeremiah, said to the Lord, your word will be to me cheerfulness and the joy of my heart. That's the Greek text of Jeremiah fifteen sixteen. Now to this prophet in whom God spoke long ago, the word of God was the joy of his heart. Today we call it finding one's bliss. I've seen many people receive the word of God over many years. I've seen a few for whom the word of God is the joy of their heart. In the word of God, they have found their bliss, not primarily in family, although that overflows to a joyous family life. But Jesus redefined the word family when he said that his mother and brothers and sisters are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Moreover, Jesus is not ashamed to call people his siblings, brothers and sisters, for whom he tasted death and whom he brings to glory with himself. Hebrews 2.11, 2.13, 2.10, Doers of the word don't find their primal bliss in a career, though they may, as I said before, be very happy in a career in which they have found their deed. They certainly do not find their bliss in popularity, or being an influencer of others, nor by making money and having things. No, rather, they found their bliss by receiving the word of God as it is in reality God's own word. To them, a stress test or an interval of severe trial is met by trusting in the Lord. Really? Trusting in the Lord isn't a slogan for them. It's a word for universal 
application in a time of trial. To be applied fully and completely and across the board. It's a matter of heeding Jesus when he said, don't fear, only believe. Mark 5.36. I hear leaders saying, it's okay to be scared. It's okay to fear. I'm afraid. I'm scared. I'm frightened. It's okay to be afraid. Jesus said, don't be afraid. Only believe. Mark 5.36. Those who heed those words are like the five wise bridesmaids in Jesus' parable in Matthew 25. They had trimmed their lamps and filled them with oil so that when the night came and when the groom and his groomsmen arrived, they could see the path that led to the wedding chapel and so they could go in with him and celebrate. The five foolish bridesmaids were fiddling while the five wise were filling their lamps. When the night comes, the foolish bridesmaids are at a loss, but it's too late to get all filled in and all filled up by the oil of the wise bridesmaids. This is what I mean when I say that I have seen one practical thing to be true over all others as a pastoral observer of people. I could give personal examples and names of individuals in our church who are stunningly revealing that they have profited from the teaching of the word and mixed faith with it over these years. Sometimes I choose not to give personal examples of these exemplars of the doers of the word who will never become drifters. And the reason I don't sometimes, sometimes the reason I don't mention names is because whenever you draw attention to someone by name, they are liable to become the target not only of the admiration of some, but of the malevolence of the slanderer and his drifting dilettantes. Now, in the last couple of gears of this message, and this is a little longer than the ones I've been preaching recently, it is said with profound impressiveness in God's word that the people perish without a vision. Proverbs 29:18. And this is true for a nation, it's true for a church, for a business or for an individual. It was said in the prophet Hosea and said with special poignancy by God himself. My own people are perishing for lack of knowledge. Hosea 4.6 It is said with striking clarity that the wisdom of this world perishes along with those who consider the word of the cross to be foolishness. 1 Corinthians 1.18-21 I'll say that people perish without a vision of God who is love without a vision that we see when we see Jesus. I say that God's own people are perishing for lack of the superior and excellent knowledge of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Philippians three, seven through 10. 
I say that it is one thing to have a vision, but still another to appropriate and make that vision our own as an implanted word that's able to save our souls and allow us to possess our souls in patience in such a time as this and other times to come. For as Jesus said in Luke 21, 19, it is in your patience that you acquire your souls. In your patience, you acquire your souls. As the PT says in Hebrews, you have need of patience. In Hebrews 10, 36. And again, sounding a little like James, in James 1, 21, the PT says, in Hebrews 12:1 and 2, therefore putting off and away from ourselves every impediment and easily ensnaring sin, let us run with patience the race of this agona that we have before us, fixing our gaze on the beginner and the finisher of this race. Jesus. Now, Philo was a famous Alexandrian Jewish Bible interpreter of the early first century who interpreted or he attempted to interpret the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, through the lens of Plato and Plato's philosophy. Some consider Philo, P-H-I-L-O, wrongly, I think, to be an influencer of the PT in Hebrews. I don't think he was. And I think there's a lot that separates Philo slash Plato from the PT in Hebrews. But there is something that Philo observed. He considered Israel to be a nation of seers, or he even called them a race of seers. Well, there's something to be said about that, except for the unfortunate use of the word race. Hebrews is all about a people who see Jesus, not just with a glance, and forget what manner of man he really is. They don't glance his way once in a while, while in a pinch in life. But a people who view him with a steady gaze and who are being changed from one degree of glory into his very image, one degree of glory to the next, one increment to the next. Right now, we're involved with the study of Hebrews. What is that to you? Is Hebrews just a letter written by a man to a house church in Rome or to a group of Christians in Jerusalem or Judea? It may be one or the other of these things. But it is the word of God. And if it's received by you as what it is in reality, the word of God and not just the word of men, it will have an effect on you and it will have an effect in you. It will become cheerfulness to you, high morale to you in battle. It will be a powerful boost of morale in this time of war. And it will be a means of elevating and saving grace. It will be the joy of your heart. 
You will profit by it if you believe it as the word of God. So we're considering a question right now in our exegesis. To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. We've been considering that God's son inherited a name that is so much more excellent than the names of any of the angels. What's it mean to you? What does it mean to you that God gave a name to his eternal son, a name that means salvation? What does it mean that by the grace of God, Jesus tasted death for everyone? What does the Greek text of Isaiah 40 and verse 5 mean when it says that all flesh together are destined to see the salvation of God? Who said it? Isaiah? Or did God say it in Isaiah? If God spoke in the prophets, then God said all flesh together will see the salvation of God. And in seeing that salvation, they would be seeing Jesus. They would be seeing Yahweh, whose flesh was pierced on Mount Golgotha. How do you receive the message? How do you receive the message of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ? Is it an opinion of men? Is it my opinion? Or is it the word of God? Moreover, has it been united with faith in you? If it has, then it's the joy of your heart. It profits you in a time of plague, in a time of war, in a time of economic challenge, in a time when men and institutions are reaching their wit's end. We don't put these teachings up in audio and video form, and beef them up in the notes just to have them on display. They're there to be devoured, to be received deeply, to be studied diligently, to be appropriated meaningfully. Otherwise, I've been running in vain and teaching for nothing. They are there to help your joy to profit you, to work effectively in you toward efficacious livingness, living that has fruitful production. They're there to impart a vision to you that keeps you from perishing, falling apart. They're there to lead you to the surpassing excellence of the knowledge of the Son of God. They're there to teach you the wisdom of the word of the cross so that your world doesn't end when the wisdom of this world ends. Your world doesn't need to end with the end of the wisdom of this world. Casual listeners who don't allow the message to be mixed with faith, 
in the interiority of their hearts become casualties in a war with an enemy that cannot be engaged by sight. Those who faint in the day of adversity do so not just because their strength is small. It's because their strength is not the Lord's strength that's poured into them and received by them with the word and the spirit. Ephesians 3.16, 2 Corinthians 12.9 and 10 come to mind. Philippians 4.13 comes to mind. So let me close this particular exhortation today, this day, today, in the same spirit and with the same tone as the PT who wrote and who preached Hebrews. I'm persuaded that you and I and that you listening, you and I, are not among those who become casualties, but of those who persevere in faith, who continue to trust in the Lord and in his power to fulfill his promises. You and I are of those who will persevere to the preservation of our souls and the encouragement of others. We're here for others. We're of those who will be blessed in our deed and happy in our spirit-empowered application of the gospel of the glory of the Christ who is the image of God and our spirit-empowered application in the spirit-engendered hope of the eschatological transformation of all of created reality. Don't let anyone tell you there's no one coming as a savior. We look with and anticipate with tiptoe anticipation the coming of our great God and Savior, the epiphany of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And he is coming again with salvation to those who are waiting for him. We are strong in the Lord now. For the Lord is in us. And we are strong in the power of his might. And his might will prevail. His might will prevail. And cause us to prevail in the evil day. The day of special adversity. Thank you for your attentiveness in this word of exhortation as Hebrews 13.22 calls it. And we'll be talking again soon. This has been increment 18. It has to do with the little Greek phrase called mixing faith with what is heard. That's it.